0: Seems
1: over on behalf of the rehalf because every father and every mother
2: waits for freedom behalf of our
3: world and paves the way for a new history.
2: Hello, and welcome to New Weekly, the show that gets behind the headlines to discuss the full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia. We broadcast every week at 1800 UTC. Please follow the main account on Twitter for more information about other projects. A recording of this broadcast and all our content can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a variety of other podcast platforms. I recommend the recent interview from our contributor, Ben, with guest Freight Monkey on grain shipping in the Black Sea. Today we have an excellent broadcast for you. We will first discuss German support for Ukraine since the start of the full-scale invasion with a special guest, Anna from Zaporizhia, who now resides in Germany. This will be followed by an excellent military panel covering a variety of topics from the week. So without any further delay, I will hand it over to Charles as soon as we get Charles up. Charles, are you uh, coming through
4: okay? Yeah, I think so. Can you hear me all right? Yep, loud and clear. Perfect. Yeah. So what we're going to start off with today is is a focus on Germany, um, actually. Um, so we're we're going to look at uh, Germany's support for Ukraine um, from the refugee side, military aid, the political environment, um, and also its new national security strategy that it has recently released. Um, but we're we're happy today to have a guest, um, and her name is. Uh, anna i believe yeah anna um so she's a ukrainian refugee living in germany um and i think one of the the main aspects why we want to start with this is that one of the things that's often missed in terms of germany's support for ukraine is also the support that it is doing for ukrainian refugees who live here um i'm in germany um and so we're happy to have uh and soren um, I'm not sure, Bionade, is our guest uh, available already? Or should we um, come back to her later?
1: Um, if we get her up, she should be av- av- available. Um, in, in the moment, she isn't. Maybe someone sent her a request or pushed the button. But yeah, um, can't cancel your account anymore. Um, no, the account is still there. Yeah, um, Yeah, tr- trying to figure this out.
4: Okay, so no worries. Um, while we're getting her up, um, it, you know, it'd be great to hear her, her impressions in terms of what it was like to to, to flee the war, of course. She's from the Zaporizhia region. Um, and also we have some interesting facts, of course, uh, some interesting poll numbers coming out uh, about how Ukrainian refugees feel about Germany and what their future plans are. Um, Maybe before that, I mean, a couple of things that we've been looking at here is we saw in the media after the NATO summit, uh, certainly um, the German government uh, appeared to be uh, in the international media a blocker to Ukrainian membership to NATO. And we're going to dive into that a little bit later. Um, but I just wanted to give a little bit of, of, a few facts about uh, German aid to Ukraine so far. So first of all, um, total German aid to Ukraine, um, according to the Ukraine support tracker the Institute for World Economy, um, says that Ukrainian aid um, has been 10.7 billion euros. Um, in in terms of commitments to Ukraine. Now, not all of this has been transferred, of course, um, as they are tracking commitments, public statements, um, and not all of the immediate transfers, of course, um, are able to be tracked in terms of when the payments are made financially, humanitarian, or military. Um, But Germany has committed 10.7 billion euros. That's third overall in the world. Of that, um, 7.5 billion euros are directly for military aid. Um, Germany actually ranks second in the world, only behind the United States in terms of military aid given to Ukraine. Um, Of course, there is a lot of publicity about how long that takes and the types and so on. Um, Maybe we can get later into the actual military aid that has been delivered versus what has been committed of course, because there's always a tension there. Now, when we look at it in terms of percent of GDP, of course, Germany falls uh, much lower. Now, Germany has a very large GDP, just as the United States or the UK. None of those countries uh, feature prominently in a ranking list in terms of um, financial commitments or any kind of commitments or aid uh, to Ukraine. Um, Germany is actually 13th. It's, it's 0.3% of, of GDP that they've actually um, pledged and committed and delivered. Um, but in addition to that, they also um, have a portion and a large portion of the European, the EU um, aid packages that have been committed to Ukraine. Um, that's primarily financial. So the EU has, whereas the, whereas the individual nation states such as uh, Poland or the UK, um, or what well, UK is not an EU, excuse me, but uh, Poland or the Netherlands um, are certainly doing bilateral agreements to provide a lot of military aid, humanitarian aid, and even financial aid. The EU has focused on financial aid um, to support the Ukrainian budget. So EU financial aid uh, has been so far about 27 um, billion euros, um, military 5.6 or so. So to put that in comparison, the EU has committed um, about 75 percent as much as Germany alone in military aid. Um, And then, of course, there's a humanitarian aid side to it as well of 2.1 billion. So uh, Germany also carries that. One of the reasons why we wanted to focus on the refugee aspect is according to the Institute for World Economy is um, actually the German government has spent about 13 billion euros. So nearly double what has spent on military aid um, for refugee support, both with with inside Germany and also within the EU. Um, So I guess basically to summarize this kind of what we're looking at here is. Yes, uh, we will look in in depth as we go through this discussion in terms of some of the shortcomings that we've seen uh, within Germany's Germany's support for Ukraine, um, as highlighted this week through the the, through the NATO summit in Vilnius and some of the statements that were made, but also not to lose sight of the fact um, that Germany has provided um, the second most military aid uh, in the world behind the United States. and also considerable financial and humanitarian support um, over the last last year. What we would like to do is also kind of go through this story. We've got Soren here and Bionata here um, who can dive into this a little bit. And this is actually a really, really big deal. Um, It was not uh, completely assumed uh, going back uh, to February 2022, that Germany would actually do this kind of thing, that they would stand in this place, and of course, over the course of the fall, as we we're talking about um, different kind of weapon systems like Leopards and Gepards and Gepard ammunition, now we're looking at Taurus and so on. It was certainly not expected that Germany would actually be this way. We're going to take a look at the um, at the national security strategy that was recently published by by the German government. This is the very first national security strategy that's ever been drafted in the history of the federal public of Germany. Um, it's a very, very interesting document. Um, and so we're gonna go through all of that, but I'd like to look back to, to Biannada, how are we doing with our guests?
1: Uh, I, I think our guest just came up. Hello, Anna. Hello. Great to hear you again. Mm. All right, I I would say let's uh, continue with Anna and uh, talk a little bit about your impressions you have as a refugee in Germany and what, what kind of challenges you have here
5: thank you very much for your invitation uh, this is very this is very important for me uh, now i'm studied uh, deutsche language so uh, so yet uh, um, I, I am a little confused What? but i will try uh, to speak uh, in english uh, good uh, my impression about le- uh, living in um, deutschland um, I would like to say that I'm very fa- thankful for uh, this uh, country, for support, uh, for all the world, for support uh, Ukraine. And uh, I think uh, uh, every Ukrainian is feeling this uh, support and we uh, see how many world are um, uh, uh, now doing for us.
1: Thank you very much, um, Anna. We already talked about um, the challenges uh, people have um, here in, in Germany. Many Ukrainians want want to stay here. Um, we talked about language. Mm-hmm. How how big is language a challenge for for Ukrainians to get into work or to work in their profession?
5: Mm. Uh, I think uh, people who uh, have in uh, uh, Ukrainian good profession, um, uh, of course, can uh, work in uh, Deutschland. Um, but uh, this is a very uh, difficult way because uh, most Ukrainian uh, Ukrainians speak um, speak um, in English uh, und um, a little in Deutsch before ich kam, ich kam zu Deutschland ich um, m um, uh, nicht speaking Deutsche. Uh, so uh, das is uh, very difficult uh, from null to start uh, und for normal professional life uh, das is uh, um very difficult to uh, have uh, a special level of uh, uh, Deutsche. Uh, I think for um, a specialist, uh, this is a very big problem. Yet now, in <laughs> truth.
1: Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> no, no problem at all. I will just, just, just repeat it for the listeners. Um, the impression really is that if you have high specialization in your job if you have an academic um degree and you want to work in your job you need really good german Mm -hmm. skills usually in the c level right but if you just just do a standard job uh, and uh uh, yeah um you you have a possibility to work in the hotel business for example right like uh, there are possibilities but the focus is getting educated and good trained workers which speak german and uh, this takes some time right
5: uh yes um i agree with you Um, that uh, this is uh, totally right
1: okay let's let's talk a bit about um ukraine and ukrainians um we just just got numbers um that around 44 percent of the ukrainians want to stay here in germany for for yeah, some years longer, or at least until the war is over. Um, I think often it plays a big role where you're from. If you can back to your to your community, right, or if there's the shelling in this community. You're from Zaporizhia. What what are your thoughts about this?
5: Uh, yes, I'm from Zaporizhia, uh, and uh, I'm uh, with my daughter um, now living in Magdeburg, uh, und, uh, uh, and and uh, I want uh, to come to my um, city, uh, to my city, uh, um, uh, because uh, I have uh, good job, uh, good roof in Zaporizhia in uh, but uh, I understand that um, um, uh, today uh, this is a very dangerous to be uh, with with child in the uh, Parisia um, um, you know every day bombed uh, uh, mine my city uh, and uh, um, I uh, I think uh, for me, uh, uh, yet it's better uh, to, uh, come, uh, to come in, uh, to Ukraine, uh, but uh, uh, n- 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 to Zaporizhia, Paro- to, to Kiev.
1: Oh yes, and this is a very, very uh, interesting point here, right? Because I have friends which were basically... Internally displaced in Ukraine, living in Lviv, sharing an apartment where two people lived before, and it was a small apartment. Now they lived. Yeah, as four people, two cats, right? And uh, yeah, everyone needs needs to take care of each other. And the rent is, is really high in in these kind of um, areas and, and cities where all people uh, found found a place to live, uh, which are a little bit safer, like you mentioned, like in Kiev or in in Lviv and uh, other cities. So I think this is a also a big problem by people considering to stay for a while longer in Germany until there is enough place for living, right?
5: Yes, yes. Um, uh, um, many people who come uh, from uh, Mariupol, uh, uh, from Bakhmut and uh, uh, other uh, cities in Ukraine um, uh, we now oc- uh, occupied or... Um, or territory we um zero zero um, um, bombed. now uh, then can um, uh, that they uh, can uh, yet to now they can now um, um leave uh, and uh, um arbeite in europe
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. They so can, can work in Europe and um, this is a possibility too. Um, Anna, f- from your perspective, we, we talked today, you speak uh, c- quite well German. <laughs> um, you, you, you're here for 10 months, right? How would you... Say how, how difficult is it is it to learn uh, German as a Ukrainian? Um,
5: uh, th- this is difficult, uh, but uh, now I understand that uh, uh, in this period uh, for me, nicht so schwer in Deutsch als in English, while all the words in my uh, head uh, confused.
1: Yeah, we can we can hear this. You're, you're mixing up German and English a little bit, but yeah, it's uh, uh, pretty similar languages um, historically speaking. Um, so I guess yes. No, that, that is
5: also um, uh, in uh, my head. Uh, uh, free language all all mix. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, when people really want uh, to learn, and this is possible.
1: Yeah, thank you. I see Charles has a question. Charles, please.
4: Yeah, I do. Um, thank you very much, Anna, for coming today. I want to ask about the Germans and, and your welcoming uh, here in Germany, Germany doesn't have the best reputation for welcoming refugees. Mm-hmm. In the past, mm-hmm. is is it, did you feel okay? Did you feel like an outsider? What were your feelings?
5: Um... Uh, honestly, I feel uh, okay uh, because um, um, we have a big uh, support. Uh, my neighbors f- support me. Uh, I have friends uh, in uh, in Deutschland, uh, and um, uh, every people. My my daughter uh, go to school in Deutschland, uh, and alle um, alle Personen in uh, dieser uh, this is school um, uh, and uh, uh, we uh, my name talked uh, my do- uh, daughter uh, go to uh, and, uh, to Tansen or the zoo uh, and um, uh, very very uh, many people want uh, to support us so uh, um, uh, for me uh, this is good to stand in in uh, Deutschland. Um, kein, kein Stress.
4: Okay, so no stress, and and your daughter is also in also in dancing. Yeah, um, that's great. Um, my follow up question is, I see within my area. So I live in Bavaria in Bayern. Mm-hmm. Um, that. The Ukrainian community is very close. So, so many of the people from Ukraine they come together, they they meet, they talk, and they are from many different places in Ukraine. Um, so, Kherson, Zaporizhia, mm-hmm. wherever, but they come together very closely. Are are you? have you met new people from ukraine here in germany
5: um, here in germany in the city where i live in uh philia uh, um representatives um, from zaporizhia from under uh start ukraine and yes we are communicating uh a lot um but uh, Mein Meinte ich denke, wir müssen auch <laughs> kommunizieren mit uh, um, uh, mit People im Deutschland. Um, das uh, ist um, this is uh, our um, Integration, uh, weil uh, uh, wir viele Zeit uh, uh, leben in Deutschland.
4: Okay so so this communication is 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 helping to integrate because you lived here a while just mm-hmm. to translate a bit so some of that <laughs> was in you. German I thank see. you <laughs> No problem Um y- you you must watch the news a lot here in Germany and also in Ukraine um and you speak with the other Ukrainian families in your area. Um, are, are you angry at what the West is doing? Are you thankful? Is there something more we should be doing? You know, what do you talk about? Um, from from Germany or from the United States or from France? What can we and what should we be doing more?
5: um oh, we are uh, waiting at the end of uh, this, this terrible war because every person in uh, uh ukraine uh, wanted uh, uh, to um uh, be in safety uh, and um um i think uh, um, Ukrainian army is uh, now very very good quality and we we need uh we need um, uh, more uh, 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 we we need aviation for uh, our um, victory uh, because for uh, ukraine soldiers uh, does this uh, this is um, mm.
1: it's it's super necessary yeah. that, that yeah. ukraine finally gets yeah. modern fighter jets mm-hmm. from the west right all right Charles, do you have any more questions, or do we have any more questions from the panel?
5: Mm. Uh, vielen, uh, so, vielen Dank for deine support and, and for deine attention.
1: <laughs> so, thank you very much, Anna, for for being here, for helping us. Um, we will con- continue with the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can stay here, yeah. and and if you have yeah. any questions or comments, uh, you're welcome. Um, I guess Charles and I, we, we're going to talk now about a, a bit about numbers uh, and Ukrainian refugees, right?
4: Es... Um, yes, definitely. Um, so, erstmal vielen Dank, Anna, dass du uh, dabei warst. So, super toll. Ja, yeah. danke. And, yeah, bien, Um So, let's, I mean, yeah, let's go into some of the refugee numbers before we get into some more of the political stuff. Um, also,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think we should start with with the latest numbers. It's around 1.1 million um Ukrainian refugees living in Germany right now. Um, yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's a giant number. Um like you can see the, the integration is, is working really well. Um just in, in January um uh, this year 2023 um 135,000 Ukrainian refugees just in January uh, visited an integration co- uh, course basically uh, in, in Germany. Learning the language, learning the, about the social life, which is basically pretty similar here in Europe, right? Um, it's over 200,000 children uh, and teenagers going to, to German schools here. Um, and also many, many, many more children in the kindergarten age um that's, that's a pretty big number in my opinion. eighty percent of the refugees here in germany if of the um yeah already grown up refugees in the age over eighteen eighty uh, percent are women right um that's that's a pretty high number um and half of them are younger than forty years old so Many mothers with their children here, many families here trying to seek refuge, but still over 150,000 Ukrainians are working, and this are the numbers from November 2022, um, in, a, in a full or part-time job uh, here in Germany. Um, that's a pretty high number, it's around 17, 18% if I remember correctly. Um and yeah. Like we heard, you need language skills, right? And people are visiting this integration courses, Ukrainians learning English, learning better German. Um we just heard it from Anna, she Uses more German than English. Uh, sometimes it's uh, pretty, pretty good and pretty well um, already. Charles, you have a point,
4: there. Yeah, actually, Anna, if you're if you're there, um, Bionade said about eighty percent of Ukrainian adults in Germany are women um is is that what you see in in the community is it's mostly mothers with children
5: Mm, uh, yes, uh, um, um, this is mostly mothers and uh, children. Sometimes mothers uh, 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 two three and uh, more children and uh, um, uh, a gra- grandmother. So th- um, this is a uh, woman uh, with children.
4: Thank you. And we hear them in the background. Um, thank you very much. i um, sorry to interrupt you, Bianca.
3: Oh, um, no.
1: Well, welcome question, Charles. Yeah, um, I, I think a point we, we need to highlight is also um, the refugees which, which are here and, and already in work, over 70% have either already a very good job training or re- European standards, I'm talking about, or also have a have a have a degree from a university and and working in their jobs here, um, which is really really over seventy percent, a really high number, uh, which is um, actually really interesting from German, for Germany too, because yeah, we all know the Fachkräftemangel, uh, the problem to get skilled workers in Germany, um, and yeah, um, it's really helpful for Germany too. So yeah.
4: Well, well thanks Binata and and Cern, I believe you're also here um, can you hear me I don't I don't actually know if that's a Twitter bug I apologize yeah if I guess not I there. guess
1: it's a, it's it's he, he's a ghost because at the moment right now I guess um yeah tw- Twitter's making it things um but yeah um, m- maybe let's continue charts we have any more numbers or you you have a different topic, what we'll to talk about.
4: Yeah, so what I'd like to dive into, um, and, and hopefully soon we'll be able to, to rejoin. I'm here. Is, is oh, great, here. great to hear you soon. Hi. Um, so so what I'd like to dive into, I mean, we, we talked about some of the refugee numbers, and um, you know, I was looking at, at some of the most recent polling numbers in Germany. From from Sunday, or actually, it was from two weeks ago. Um, But one of the numbers that was outstanding for me was is that seventy two percent of the German public wants the same or more support from Western countries for Ukraine. That was a really interesting one for me, and I know there's been a lot of debate about is this whole Zeitungwende real. Um, does it really exist? And and I've been in the position that it does. I, I feel it in the people that I'm with. I feel a transition from maybe the old Merkel um, idea since February 2022 to today. Um, but of course, we also see like high numbers for the AFD at the moment, you know, 18 percent or something in the most recent polling numbers. But I'm maybe we could discuss a little bit about. Is this transition in Germany real and, and how did that happen? And what are your thoughts on that, Sören? This
3: is a very good and very broad question and we could fill uh, evenings um, <clears throat> talking about it, I think. Um, to my mind, it's real. To my mind, the Zeitenwende has had an effect um, and it's real. And it's still there, and Germany has changed since this full-scale invasion started. And it has changed to the better, because this Zeitenwende was very, very necessary. The level of Russian interference, but also the level of Germans inviting, and Germany inviting Russia to interfere here, was simply... Catastrophic and it caused a lot of damage and maybe it was one of the reasons why this war could start Because it was the opposite of deterrence, of course So, but this is now a theoretical discussion and this is history And that's why it's good that we have left the 5000 helmet position Which stands like a symbol of shame for this, let's call it old German-Ukrainian relationship. For many Germans, Ukraine was a flyover country, basically, right? And now it's on the agenda. And having it on the agenda is a value for itself, of course. And of course, the war is horrible, and um, and, and and it's. it's, it's this comment was not made with regards to the war. Of course, the war is the reason why it is on the agenda, but that it is on the agenda of Germans is new and it's good. And that's for itself an effect of the Zeitenwende, which we have, I think, to, um, which we have to filter in different levels of more macro and more meta-level Zeitenwende. On the meta level, I think the effect is huge. It's really huge simply because things like Nord Stream 2 and all this kind of stuff are simply off the table and not only for now, but for decades to come, to, to come right? For many decades to come. This is unthinkable, if not a major, major, major political change in Russia um, and will occur um, leading to democracy, which will not be the case. Um, in our lifetimes, uh, most likely. Um, so this is off the table. And um, this is good for itself. On the macro level, we have to, uh, yeah, we can we can discuss uh, in, in which field to look and um, about which people to speak. Um, if the zeitenwende has really um, reached the hearts and minds of the Germans, I have my doubts for many, but in some cases, and not a few, yes, also here, it had an effect. There is this, or there was, this huge wave of, um, of sympathy when the war started. And refugees like Anja and um, her friends and family, um, when they came to Germany, there was a huge wave of support and a huge wave of um, neighbors, people, helping. There was a huge wave also, or a huge willingness to, to donate. Of course, this this has gone down, but I think it's also a natural effect. This always happens, and it always happens when an event is ongoing for such a long time. So that's kind of normal, and also it has not turned into the the opposite of it, right? There is no oh my God, can the Ukrainians please leave now, or something like this. You will not see this even not in Eastern Germany and Eastern Germany is a little bit specific as you mentioned it already. We have those high, um, exceptionally high um, polls and also not only polls, but also voting results for right and left wing um, um, extremist um, parties in, in Eastern Germany, which tend to be very, um, very against, very much against um, uh, refugees. So, there was this high um, appreciation, and um, but then, of course, also um, when you look into the comments on social media, it's also horrible, right? So here, many many Germans um, have not learned, and many many Germans um, are very, very uh, are still very much um, not so much anti-Ukraine but pro-Russian still and this is something for me um, which really also surprised me how persistent this this being pro russian and being believers of and, and, and yeah believers of, of russian propaganda how persistent this really is until until the very day you 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 can read horrible statements really where you really think gosh i mean do you read the news do you know what's going on in ukraine
4: yeah, no, I, I thank you very much. So and I mean, from my perspective, and, and we'll come to Colby in a, in a moment. Um, but the recent poll numbers in terms of, of, you know, more support for Ukraine in Germany was was really an eye opener for me. I hadn't seen numbers in, in terms of 72%. Um, now, of course, it, I think it was uh, 40 Ah, forty percent for the same, and and thirty-two uh, percent for more. Uh, but this level of number I hadn't seen um, before. Also, the fact that Boris Pistorius, the current defense minister, is the most popular politician in Germany according to ongoing polls. Um, that was really fascinating to me. But also, of course, this this eighteen percent for AFD. Um, the fact that there seems to be some kind of split here going where there's a very clear split between who is behind a values-based um, uh, foreign policy and national security policy, which we'll get into, versus how, how many are really um, subject to Russian, well, or right-wing extremism. And, and of course, as I was speaking with Rosalie this week, Um, what a target Germany is for Russian disinformation. Not to say that that's one-to-one correlation, but um, we certainly are a target here. Um, Do you see that split as as well between those who are for and against? The split between those who are for and against.
3: Um, I find this number also exceptionally high. I'm surprised I have to say also about this number and I'm very happy about it so I'm really I'm really happy about it um, I live in Eastern Germany as I told you I live in the city of Magdeburg the same city where uh, Anja also uh, is at the moment and um, here we have uh, exceptionally high AFD uh, voting results uh, all the time right and um, for here the number is for sure smaller so the number here if you ask the same question here, it, you will not get seventy-two percent. Unfortunately, um, um, yes. But but uh, but but as a, as a as a general German result, of course, it's it's great and it's uh, it, and it's amazing and um, it's also important. And um, I have to say honestly that um, I'm very very happy with uh, with with the development Germany took in the in the last uh, one and a half years right? Because um, before it was simply horrible and now we are the second strongest um, military and economical supporter for, for Ukraine and that's amazing. That's really amazing and I'm also a little bit proud of it because the politics before were so bad with regard to Russia and also the support for Ukraine was so little, you know? And that's why it makes me really proud. I have to say that we are Doing this that we are helping Ukraine uh, to such an extent and this is this is this is not nothing this is a lot you know and um, we should do even more it should be even more and Germany should 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 take should take the lead uh, in everything else that is still necessary but the things that are still necessary now we can okay there will always be necessary things but now now we really also have to, uh, uh, have to admit that now really Ukraine is equipped with a set of military equipment they need and they can use and they do use it. Yes, and as I'm always saying, Ukrainian bravery and Ukrainian skill and our Western weaponry will lead us to victory. And now it's about giving them all the things they already have, more and more and more and more and more. And here Germany has to take um, a, a, an important role. And I think it is doing so when I'm reading the news about um, corporations in the defense sector and, um, and, and new memorandums of understanding signed and new um, industrial capacities being planned. Um, I have quite a good feeling and Bistorius, really is doing a great job. I have to say this, and I have never expected this from a social democrat um, politician in Germany, because it was this very party which was in the lead. It was not the communists, it was not the left party, it was the social democrats which were, were in the lead of selling out this country to Russia. I have to say it like that. And this stopped.
4: Thank you. Thank no. you. Sorry. Um, Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, thank you very much, sir. Um, Colby, please, go ahead.
6: Thank you. Uh, Can you hear me okay? I'm walking through a ravine right now.
4: Yeah, it's not bad. We can understand what you're saying.
6: Okay. Um, You you had mentioned the uh, Venda, the Special Procurement Fund, I think, Charles. I just wanted to offer some thoughts on that, if that's all right.
4: Yeah, please go ahead.
6: So uh, I've been... Fairly skeptical, fairly critical of Germany on defense spending and, and procurement, uh, and continue to be so, but credit where credit is due, um, significant investments are being made. There's an $8 billion deal for 35 F-35 fighter jets. There is an $8 billion deal for uh, 60 uh, Chinook heavy-lift helicopters. There, there is some mention or discussion around Germany replacing its current fleet of Uh, Eurocopter Tiger attack helicopters with American AH AH-1Z, Viper attack helicopters. So there's a lot of movement. Um, You know, Germany's got the European Sky Shield initiative that they're leading as well. So certainly there is very positive change happening. Uh, Obviously, a lot more still to be done because Germany does have fairly robust, uh, a very robust economy, obviously, and they have, you know, a, a, a capable defense industrial base that's underutilized right now i would say so certainly more to be done but there are a lot of very encouraging signs of, uh, of progress and actual decisions and contracts being signed and uh, that should be recognized
4: yeah thanks a lot colby and and yeah definitely um we will dive into some of the uh, some of the topics here shortly about the, the pace of this um one of the things that we were talking about earlier within Tochny is the translation of the word Seitenwende. We use it a lot. Um, it's used a lot uh, by the Germans, um, but it's, it's, it's very difficult to translate. So, so first of all, Seiten, I mean, many English speakers will have heard the word Zeitgeist. guys. So Zeit basically means time if you, if you translate it directly. Um, but in this case, it means era. Um, it, it, it really is a, is a longer time period. It means an era. And, and Wende, the second part of it, W-E-N-D-E, has a really deep semantic meaning in German. So, for example, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany is called the Wende. Literally, it just means turn. Um, but this meaning has a huge semantic significance in Germany. Um, so basically, the way that this would translate to would be some kind of a watershed moment in an era. And one of the things that we've seen is the political establishment, so so Schultz and the coalition, has been weak over the last, well, it's weak by nature because it's a, it's a three-party coalition. But one of the things that they have done that I'd like to dive into now is that Germany has actually produced its very first national security strategy. So Germany never had a national security strategy until now. It was released about a month ago, maybe about three weeks ago. It was late, um, as these things can be. Um, But this was something, uh, when we were looking at it from a German perspective earlier in the war, you know, we were talking about things like um, Nord Stream 2, we were talking about deals with China, uh, China purchasing port in Hamburg, um, different um, SMEs in Germany, um, talking about um, all of these topics that were nationally security related that weren't necessarily seen as national security topics. So for observers for the U.K. or from the U.S., this is, this is a given. The U.S. has always had national security strategies. This is why they have done things um, such as oil reserves and so on. Germany never had this until now. Now they've recently published um, and completed and published their very first one. So just give, just to give you a little update on the national security strategy of Germany as it's published, you can find it online. It's in English. It's also in German. Um, additionally, any of the statistics that we were talking about in terms of um, refugee aid or military aid to Ukraine, this is all broken down in line items by the German government. Unfortunately, you have to, um, to speak German for some of this. Um, but on the national security. So first of all, the process was interesting. Um, Such an undertaking within a coalition government is not to be taken for granted. Um, If we go back to the days of Merkel, and I think Biennale or Soren can talk about the shadow of Merkel. um, You know, she was in power for 16 years. Um, She was neither good nor bad. She was who she was. Um, But we didn't have that. Now, to, to try to undertake this national security strategy within this coalition government, um, where all of the ministries contribute to this, it's led by the foreign ministry and signed off by the by the chancellery. Um, but it the, the motto of it is um, robust, resilient, sustainable. So basically it has three sections, robust, is basically um, its defense strategy in terms of uh, military. Then we have resilient, which comes down to things like um, comes down to things like uh, national health, um, supply chains, natural resources, and so on. Because the national security strategy recognizes that supply chains, especially natural resources. Um, are a major security issue. This was something that we didn't have at all before. Nord Stream 2 was not considered as a national security issue. Now we have a policy uh, from the government, which basically says things like that is and sustainable is 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 things in terms of um, how do we uh, look towards the future? The main issues, the main changes that we see in this that we didn't see before was now there's a a quote, for example, it says it's values based, but interest driven. Now, this is a huge change for the federal government of Germany, because all of the criticism and a lot of the decisions, rightly so, were based um, exclusively on individual interests and individual decisions. Now there's a values-based look at this, um, and they are very much looking at this from a values-based perspective. Some of the messaging that they have about China, for example, is very, very interesting. They look at it as an international partner, but a but a, a, a financial competitor and a values rival. That's just an example. Um, They identify that Russia, naturally, is the number one um, threat to national security. Um, Other things that they do in the national security policy is, for example, as they've stated from from the military side, is that the Bundeswehr should be the cornerstone of conventional defense in Europe, quote-unquote. Now, how they're going to achieve that, we will have to see. One of the things that there that is in the policy is to expand the presence in allied territory. This is where we've seen Pistorius's uh, announcement that uh, a German brigade should be stationed in Lithuania as soon as the infrastructure is ready to support the troops, the families, and so on. Um, the other thing that comes up—this um, is these are just highlights. It's 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 a long document, 76 pages long. So I encourage you to read it on your own, but. Another one is is the expansion of the Bundeswehr's capability to include precision deep-strike weapons. Um, so these are some of the things that, that make this quite interesting. I would point to this as as an evidence of the vendor. but I see we've got a couple of people who would like to speak. Uh, Biennale, please go ahead.
1: Oh, I wanted to speak about the German sideguest, but maybe John has something more topic-related at this point
7: i was just going to ask Charles. Unfortunately, I haven't had an opportunity to to read the document yet in English, but um, could you kind of give us an illustration of how this kind of contrasts with specifically the U.S. national security strategy, which tends to be very, very long and very comprehensive, reasonably concrete and more significantly, there is a even more specific and even longer and even more concrete classified edition that's delivered to Congress um, how does the, the, the German, the new German national security strategy kind of compare to the U.S. approach in that regard?
4: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So, um, so the, the main difference is, and I don't know how to say this uh, correctly, but you're basically looking at the very first time a country has attempted this process. So there's no clear link to the federal budget. For example, like you would see in in the U.S. defense strategy, that it would go into an appropriation bills and so on, and that's a big open question. Um, essentially, you're looking at a, a government, especially a coalition government, that is trying this for the very first time. Um, on the other hand, what's interesting about it is, especially if I compare it to the United States uh, approach, the United States has always had or at least in my lifetime, has always had a values-based national security strategy. Um, Going back to Reagan's time, I mean, the United States was the shining city on the hill. I mean, that was the whole idea. Um, For Germany to say that they have a values-based national security strategy is a huge change. Um, But it is still a country's first attempt at trying to fulfill that role. Um, and I think another thing, uh, you know, just to come back to what Soren was talking about, about leadership and so on, the National Security Act Strategy actually highlights that Germany will probably not take a, a leadership role in, in all of these things. I think Jessica Berlin talked about it being an anchor. But not necessarily a driver. So an anchor in terms of a, a foundation. Um, that's actually what it highlights: is is a lot of this. The implementation of of what should be done is through multinational partnerships, through the EU, through NATO, and so on. Um, it is fairly specific in terms of of how these things should be implemented through multinational um, um, organs, but it is it is not something where we don't have a direct implementation does that sort of answer your question John? more or less yes thank you Charles Thanks Bionata, uh, did you want to come back to to the zeitgeist or to the translation? Oh yeah
1: and not, not, not even to the translation but like I would just give you a quick rundown how I experienced growing up in Germany uh, in my education. Um, the zeitgeist and the, the mindset of the people, right? About Germany, there was always never again a war after the Second World War and the First World War, which more or less originated from from Germany. It's nobody wanted to have a strong military in Germany again. The German society didn't wanted it. Um, well, well, most parts of the German society didn't want it. And yeah. This is basically the, the mindset we, we we are talking about, right? Jessica Berlin um, was on the NAFO summit in, in Vilnius, um, if you all saw this, and she made a very, very good um, uh, comment on this and said Germany shouldn't be a leader of a military alliance, right? But Germany has a possibility to be kind of an anchor in a supporting role. Whenever there is a big military coalition in and around Europe, protecting Europe, protecting NATO, protecting our values, uh, where Germany can take this role, not as a leader, but as the anchor and as the backbone of the whole coalition. And this is, I think, a point many Germans will now say, right, this is the role we can take. And this is a big part for me of the Zeitende, Um how this played out and plays out now.
4: Thanks, Biannade. Please go ahead, Colby. So
1: Biannade
6: points out that the German public has not historically, since uh, the end of the Second World War, had a lot of interest in having a, a large and powerful military, which is certainly true but I think it's important to remember that during the Cold War the Bundeswehr was in fact quite large and quite capable and could field a full spectrum of capabilities that a modern military during the Cold War needed to have. So it's not without precedent for Germany to once again step up and have a a credible uh, military because historically they did. Um, So if they don't wanna play a leading role, that's totally fine. And I think that's probably for the best, but certainly they do need to um, have the level of participation that they have historically, I think is very much necessary. And apologies for being out of breath and walking up the hill right now.
1: No, absolutely. And and maybe you need to need to point out here the fact I'm I'm from East Germany, I've grown up in East Germany, right? Um, and yeah, like we, we were like split in, in the Cold War, right? One side, the Soviet side, the other side, um, the, the Western side. And yeah, this, 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 Germany, until this point, did not realize that we have a kind of an obligation to, to support the structure of Europe, the defense structure of Europe, because no one would attack Germany, wouldn't make any sense of our neighbors, right? We, we don't need to protect our country, we are in the European Union, everything's fine and yeah this is the kind of the the mindset i experienced but you're totally right um especially uh, in west germany uh, we had a very strong military also in east germany with the nba um so yeah maybe soren can 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 tell us a little bit about this
3: and with the Russians in Eastern Germany, we also had a very <laughs> strong military. No, I'm joking. Um, the, the, they had 400,000 soldiers in Eastern Germany stationed, the Russians, the, the, the Soviet group in, in, in Germany. But that's a different story. Um, no, of course, we had no national security strategy, obviously. Yes. And that's part of the time before this development that we call Zeitenwende, right? And um, yeah, it was a series of, of stupid things happening, right? It was simply a different time. And that's why I think the term Zeitenwende is partly really also justified because you can measure um, you can measure in, in terms of, of, of defense and national security. There's a Germany before the 24th of February, 22, and one after it in many other sectors not so much but in this security related sectors it's a fact i think um, by the way i don't use the term zeitenwende for myself i'm using it now in this in this space because we are calling it like this and this is the let's say the hashtag right but i don't like it very much i have to say because um, i think it's a little bit like it's a little bit too early to measure if this really is and was a titanwende, especially if you if you compare it as it was done before in this space with um, historic developments like the peaceful revolution, as I call the so-called wende, because a wende a change you don't know what can cause a vendor? everything can cause a vendor. but a peaceful revolution has to be made by people that's why i prefer to to use this term and zeitenwende i think it's too early and, and 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 we will see but definitely a very very positive development has started in 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 germany and for german uh, for for germany for german politics but also for our um, security and defense um, Capability, of course, it's a it's a necessary development, and if we take the lead here and there um, for some of those developments in Europe, also it's also good. So, but in my, for my private um, wording, the term Zeitwende is not necessary, um, and um, I think there are other elements that are more important and describe it also better simply that Ukraine has a place in German debates now. this hell ha- not hasn't happened before there was no place for Ukraine in Ukraine didn't uh, you, Ukraine didn't take place before in, 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 in Germany it's literally like this there was no discussion about it. It was mentioned when there was another, uh corruption scandal, maybe a large one, but also only the large ones, right? And this is good. We are bringing also people into contact with each other. And um, sometimes people are asking me um, because I'm a Ukraine traveler and um, quite Ukraine experienced, um, and they ask me something about Ukraine, and then I say, um, ask ask people if you have if you don't believe me. Ask people, there are enough Ukrainian refugees now who are talking Ukrainian or also sometimes Russian in our streets. Go to them, ask them, and then you will have your first-hand experience. And this is very, very good. And also in in private debates, um, I heard that quite a lot of people are planning to visit Ukraine after victory. And they haven't had this on their agenda before. This is because now... It's reported about the war, yes, but also about cultural aspects, for instance, which is very, very important. So, okay, I I, I left my red line a little bit, um, but um, I just wanted to share this with you, that, that, that I think that the personal experience people are making now with Ukraine is as much, and maybe even more important than framing something like Zeitenwende.
4: Uh, thanks a lot, Sören. Um Yeah, we just have a couple of minutes left on this segment. Um, thank you very much. But I'd like to go to Masilias, um for a question or comment. Please, Masilias.
8: Hi. Um, I would like kind of to pick up where uh, Søren left and that uh, what zeitenwende it might be really a little bit too early because we are still under high influence of Russian propaganda and uh, it's not like everyone has realized how deeply it actually went under the skin of of of, uh, of institutions and uh, and uh, way of thinking and best examples all over the world today for example uh, Elon Musk has tweeted uh, something which was uh, totally Russian propaganda-ish which is uh, like that the, he's a rocket producer right with ro- rocket x of course these are not weapons but those are rockets but he literally tweeted that uh we need to uh admit that we can uh, uh, that ukraine has too little rockets to um defend itself against all the rockets come uh, which are possible uh, for, uh, to to came up from russia but how could it be we have a united uh, world and and we have a lot of producers and i i also think that for real site and vendor the production of things like that should be getting up much faster and much uh, earlier than it uh, than, than, as we uh, as you can witness it so yeah okay <laughs>
4: No, no, perfect. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a, that's a good note to close uh, this segment on. Is you know we've talked a lot about um, German public opinion, uh, a little bit about the evolution of German politics. Of course, we could discuss this uh, for hours, and, and you know nobody here is is trying to state um, that. You know the German government's response to requests to Ukraine uh, for military aid have been promptly handled. Um, Massilius, I think you have a hot mic. If you could mute, mo- if you could mute, that would be great. Thank you. Um, but unfortunately, I need to uh, I need to move on. Um, we're over the hour mark, and we would like to go on to the military segment. Um, we have uh, several good people to help us with the military segment today. Um, we will follow up on the Germany topic um, if it's interest to, to you. Um, please shoot us a DM to the main account um, or to me or to to Biennata, um or anybody who's involved in the panel. Um, we would love to have you know, we would love to follow up on this stuff, but um, we will have to move on. Um, to the military segment. So, I on the military segment today, um, we have a uh, pretty good panel. Um, John Ridge here. Well, we have a very good panel. We have John Ridge. We have Artois. Um I think others will be joining as well. Um, one of the things that has come up over the last week on the military side, um, besides the NATO summit and all of the political stuff, is sort of this idea that the Ukrainian offensive has somehow stalled. Um, even Putin himself came out today and said that the Ukrainian offensive has failed. Um, you know, we, we were discussing it internally. We don't see it that way, but why is that? Maybe we'll start with you, Artswar. Why is this assessment that the Ukrainian offensive has already failed Why is that wrong? Uh, Yeah.
9: uh, Good to hear from everyone. Good to be here again. Um, So really, I I think we've seen this narrative. It's been like since the early days of this uh, current counteroffensive. It's been coming from all kinds of uh, dark corners of media and everything. And it's uh, starting to get under some people's skin. And we see some idiots in media kind of parroting that line um, verbatim without kind of (laughs) gauging their brains, that's there. Um, so, I mean, I, I would say, first of all, I would think back to last summer, um, for those of us, or most of us who have been um, following this closely, at least since then, uh, back to the Herson counteroffensive. Um, so the announced kind of start, of the, the official start of that counteroffensive was towards the end of August. That was when the Ukrainian forces first broke through uh, the initial lines of defence all along that kind of, if you recall, that northern part of the occupied territories um, on the right bank of the Dnepro, the western side. Um, But even this um, in August was after uh, months, and I mean months of kind of intense and calculated targeting of Russian logistics, um, ammunition, fuel storage, transport lines, bridges, and and everything in between. Um, And from that kind of quote, official start of the counteroffensive, the day her son city was liberated wasn't until the 11th of November, so it was almost three months later, if you want to put it into perspective. Um, everyone remembers that kind of huge wave of blue on the, of the Deep State maps or Andrew's maps or wherever you were following at the time, but this really followed um, months of very, very hard fighting, um, some painful losses, unfortunately inevitable, um, and absolutely relentless degradation of Russian positions, logistics, um, including the Antonovsky bridge, which I'm sure everyone remembers was you know had <laughs> countless holes in it and, and was burning almost nightly at one stage. Um, and it kind of ties in you know everyone remembers that summer as well um, high Mars o'clock and all this excitement around that. But the really important part of that was the introduction of Gimler's and high Mars was all of the ammo dumps within 40, 50, sometimes 60 kilometers of the front line um, just started being vaporized right including in the Herson region. And this really forced the Russians to completely reorient their logistics. And it really took them most of the rest of 2022 to adapt to that. Um, and now with the introduction of Storm Shadow, they're, they're having those same problems again, but um, by b- orders of magnitude greater. Um, so f- much further behind the lines, really nowhere in occupied Ukraine is safe now to store um, any real quantities of ammunition or fuel. So, I mean, the past two weeks alone, the russians have lost no exaggeration thousands upon thousands of tons of ammunition um that would be used to either for future offensives or to defend against the current offensive um and ben wallace there was a kind of a little tidbit came out from the the nato summit ben wallace stated in a single strike just one of these strikes over 2500 tons of ammunition was destroyed um, and that's the kind of thing that Storm Shadow is bringing to the table. And obviously, the same goes for fuel, train stations, more bridges, um, or as we've seen recently from the spike and kind of very senior Russian officer deaths, um, any kind of accumulation of Russian troops now essentially means a death sentence for those involved. And this is anywhere in occupied Ukraine. Um, and these, I mean, these are military district level commanders responsible for entire fronts. Um, so, I guess my overall point is that we're still. I think in the very early stages of this counteroffensive, when you put it into perspective, um, and those talking about you know, things like failure um, and nonsense like that, it's it's kind of reminiscent of one um, bill journalist's kind of now infamous procl- proclamations last year um, about you know the, the failed co- cursan counteroffensive, right? After some very expected vehicle losses, um, and the Russians are kind of you know Storm Shadows only kind of just arrived. And Russians are already starting to say that they have some really very serious issues with ammunition on critical parts of the front. Um, and in an interview this week in the Times, some Ukrainian artillery officers are saying, particularly around Bakhmut, uh, they reached parity with Russian guns around one or two weeks ago, and they're now outshooting them um, because of kind of the, the the ammunition that they've saved up, obviously, but the very real logistic problems that the Russians are having. So. Really, I I would encourage patience. Um, Pay attention to what Ukraine is actually doing with kind of surgically degrading uh, Russian forces and, uh, yeah, just try and remember the big picture because we're very early on in this and um, uh, things are definitely going in the right direction.
7: Just to add on to what Artvar was saying, I think that people should have a, I guess a, a, a greater understanding of the fact that this offensive operation is not going to be entirely maneuver 100% of the time um, that we should expect to see phases that are you know predominantly maneuver and other phases that are predominantly more attritional warfare again just to, to analogous to Herson, we saw this there as well we would see yeah, particularly at the beginning of the announced offensive in August there was a relatively brief phase of maneuver, I believe near uh, Davidiv Breed, along the Inletz River. That then shifted into a largely attritional phase, then yet another phase of maneuver, then attrition, and then maneuver as essentially the Russians completed their withdrawal from Harrison. So these kind of the, these, these changes in the nature of the offensive are not necessarily an indicator of its success or failure. Um, There's something that is to kind of be expected in, in just the course of operations. I believe Angry Staff Officer has a very good tweet about this that I'm gonna put up in the nest right about now. I'm kind of drawing comparison to the news Argonne offensive by the American Expeditionary Force during the First World War where we in some in some sense ran into similar issues that the Ukrainians are now experiencing. We embarked upon the beginning of the offensive, of the offensive um, engaged in quite a bit of maneuver, and kind of bashed our heads against the wall and ran into some quite fierce German resistance. We then introduced an operational pause, implemented tactical reform, reforms at the tactical level, reforms in the leadership and organization of the units assigned to that operation. And then after a period of time, we resumed the operation with success. So... I I think that we may have all been a little bit mentally spoiled, if you will, by the Harkiv offensive, and just how rapidly it progressed. That any sort of, um, you know, very obvious attritional phase, just you know, straight maneuver, basically, until they reached uh, Lyman and then things kind of slowed down uh, dramatically for there. So I think that's just an important bit of perspective that we need to keep in mind here. What will, on the longer term really be the indicators of either success or failure will be at least from a maneuver standpoint will be if Ukraine commits the majority of the combat power that has assembled for the offensive indications currently are that Ukraine has yet to commit the majority of the forces and combat power um, aligned for this offensive operation. If the majority of that is committed and you know, the objectives are not reached at that point, Then things would, then we can kind of begin to have that discussion of, well, maybe things have fallen short of what the desired end state was. And by the same token, if in terms of sustainment, if it becomes difficult for Ukraine to sustain the attritional phase of this operation, then that is the point where we can begin to have that discussion of, again, does the achievable end state match the desired end state? But for the moment, we are not really at that point as of yet
4: okay i mean that's interesting john and and thank you very much artois um you know i'm I'm gonna play devil's advocate here a bit and you know i think in terms of what expectations might have been say in march or april you know at first there was this idea of a spring offensive then there was the idea of a summer offensive um i know there was a lot of discussion of course of when it would actually start there was there were weeks and weeks of when it would start and and how people were going to come through. Um, I know we, I think we even saw today that the the British have confirmed that they've now trained 18,000 Ukrainian soldiers in the UK. Um, But of course, everything has a timeline. The Leopards had a timeline, the challengers and the M1s and the Bradleys and so on. But honestly, at the end of the day, I mean, I think everybody's just sort of looking at the map and, and kind of, looking at terrain that, you know, when, when the blue line moves and the red line moves and that success, um, it, it sounds clearly like that's not actually the right indicators. John, you pointed to whether Ukraine has committed its combat power or, and how it's able to sustain something. Um, first question I have for you guys is basically, you know, what other indicators should we be looking at in terms of success versus culmination or, or failure? Any thoughts on that, John? Well, th- that's exactly the point I was trying to get
7: at, Charles, is that the I, – I this may not be, I guess, the most technical definition, but we, we can begin to start talking about culmination if, again, they ha- – If we reach a point where Ukraine has committed the majority of the combat power they have aligned to this operation and they are still unable to make, you know, the desired gains, then that is the point, I guess, at which we can begin to talk about culmination. Or if they are no longer able to sustain um, the attritional aspect of this operation, that is also another point at which we can begin to, to begin to, to begin to discuss culmination.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot, John. Um, Nuno, uh, please, go ahead.
0: So, uh, hello everyone, can you hear me all right? Yes, it's quite good. Okay, thank you. Uh, good to be here, uh, good to be here with uh, John and Arthur, uh, also with you in the panel. Uh, so, John uh, makes excellent points, and artwar made excellent points. Uh, the first thing I would like to say is we should look back a bit in history and beyond the Curson Curson offensive and look, for instance, at the um, the Operation Overlord. Uh, Operation Overlord started on the 6th of June 1944 and the Allies, with overwhelming um, air superiority, uh, basically reached Paris on august the 20th of august uh 1944 so this is let's have a bit of perspective here and i agree wholeheartedly with john when he says that one of the big things here is ukraine hasn't committed the bulk of its um offensive capability to the operation they have been very systematic in my view on the way they're conducting operations they basically uh, are targeting Artillery assets, they're targeting counter-battery assets, they're targeting logistics. Uh, Basically, they have ongoing long-range fires uh, targeting uh, going on. Um, And and they've conducted offensive operations in order to force Russians to commit reserves. Because uh, as someone who's in the audience once told me, Uh, CJ, uh, is very correct. They're very focused on effects on the enemy. Not exactly the ground, not exactly seizing ground yet, but producing effects on the enemy. And uh, I believe with what we are watching right now uh, with General Popov for instance, and a a bunch of other, even with Wagner to some extent, but that's a, a, I'd say a a different matter, but with General Popov and General Teplinsky and others that are, there are rumors they've been arrested and relieved of command. What we are seeing here is the result of those uh, activities that have been so systematic. There's, if General Popov, here uh, the commander of the 58 combined arms armies to be believed, Russia, who's an artillery army, is uh, strapped for shells, has no counter-battery capability available, has little to no reserves, with units being unable to rotate from the front for months on. So that defect will eventually lead to a breach of Russian defenses. There's no way around it, unless the Russians uh, do commit additional reserves, which I don't believe they have, Even the the efforts going on around mobilization are tepid at least. And what we are seeing is uh, clearly effects on the chain of command deriving from effects on the battlefield and effects from the political internal situation in Russia. So, there's a a window opening where we'll go from the attrition phase to a more dynamic uh, movement phase of the war, for sure. And Of course, we can debate other scenarios. If you tell me, okay, uh, Ukraine has committed its full combat potential for the offensive and we're not going anywhere, all right, then we have a problem. But that's not the reality of matters, and things need to have some perspective. Uh, We're a month and two weeks, roughly, into this, kind of. And honestly, I don't uh, see this as anything of a failure, I see it as a, even with some adaptations, because the enemy always will I see it as a very clear and systematic plan of the Ukrainian military to basically uh, target enemy reserves, target uh, enemy uh, logistics and command, and deny uh, uh, the, the ability to resupply and to rotate forces on the front that will eventually lead to a collapse in one or two places of that front. And then you can drive a main effort in going to a more dynamic and maneuver phase of the war.
4: Yeah, uh, thanks a lot, Nuno. I, I, I want to pick up a, later, um, I'm going to leave it on, on the notepad here for the clear plan of Ukraine to do this, um, because I think they themselves have said that they've changed the planning of their offensive. But I will pick up on that in a moment, but I want to go back to John's two points, which was, you know, these indicators of when Ukraine has committed um, basically their their maximum combat power and and then also their ability to sustain this phase. And so I want to bring in Andrew here in terms of, you know, what has Ukraine committed so far? I know we were talking a little bit offline in terms of where are the strikers and and so on, but what is your reading, Andrew, in terms of you know how many of these assault brigades, how much of this of this combat power, including ammunition, has been allocated to this offensive so far?
10: Uh, typically, I I try to stay away from exact numbers, but from what I understand, it's something like. Uh, a quarter to a third of uh, the combat power that they had set aside. Um, uh, So like, if we look at like the, the main thrust towards, uh, you know, South from uh, Orkiv, um, uh, there's like four main brigades attacking there. Um, There's, there's more than just that, but there, there's four primary brigades fighting here. And, um, they're, they're kind of two in the middle and one on each flank. And uh, the, the one on the western flank is doing like a, like a pretty good job. And the one on the eastern flank is, uh, has been kind of um, not, not doing what was expected. Let's put it that way. Um, so um, that, that eastern flank is kind of the, the current weakness in this, this thrust And as part of why they haven't been able to push as far as maybe people expected, because that that Eastern side is uh, kind of struggling. So um, now what would happen... If that eastern side caught up and pushed up so that it kind of even out the uh, the front, because if you look, it's kind of the eastern side is kind of like a jagged tooth sticking out. But uh, uh, but what, what would happen if they pushed up and even the front and maybe made a little breakthrough? Um, maybe uh, things would get exciting then with, uh, you know, more forces committed. Um, but. uh <laughs> overall speaking uh i i don't really keep track of the exact uh locations of all the brigades and battalions or anything it's it's just a just a ton of work i don't have time for honestly um but uh uh, i i think it's about a third to a a quarter something like that
4: interesting okay thank you very much and and you know when we're talking about John's point of being able to sustain this phase I mean if we're talking about a nutritional phase uh, which also Nuno referenced um, you know there's there's not only the metrics and I'm not going to try to dive too deep into the losses and all of this and because not every loss is the same it's not always in the same place there's different uh, values to all of this it, and, and also tracking losses itself is not necessarily um, the right metric. But one thing we do know, Andrew, is is that ammunition is a key aspect. Um, and, you know, if we're, if we're looking at, at things like uh, Russian commanders, but we've heard this before, sorry to be honest, but um, we've, we've heard this before, well, I'm <laughs> always honest, but, about Russian commanders saying, "We don't have any shells. We don't have any shells. We don't have any shells." Um, what is what is your reading of this this whole idea of munitions and and especially artillery, Andrew, of of how this looks in the future? Yeah, the so when when this when this
10: offensive started, uh, we, we saw this kind of like a, a big maneuver um, uh, type of you know trying to. Cover a lot of ground in a very short period of time, going straight south. Um, they, uh, you know, three quarters of that uh, seems to work. The other quarter kind of got bogged down. Um, people are have been blaming the 47th, but the 47th were not the brigade who got bogged down. It was a different brigade. Um, but. Uh, when, when, when they got bogged down they had to kind of resort to, to a more infantry tactics uh, sort of thing. so so now Ukraine is having to expend more shells per kilometer traveled than they were I think initially hoping or planning for. So this means that ammo is now a, a bigger problem for uh, you know Ukraine's advance here so so what we're seeing is is not so much, that their uh the strategy is failing or that they're not able to to move or anything like that because what ukraine is doing is actually working and is working pretty well um you know they're doing a lot of damage uh to to the russian um uh, you know rear they're doing damage to uh, a lot of their equipment but they are uh, they're running the risk of running out of ammo, and th- this is becoming um, kind of uh, the, the biggest question mark. Um, because if if Ukraine had sufficient ammo, uh, what they're doing now would probably be very successful in the long term. Um, but but because we have this kind of um, I do worldwide or or <laughs> collective west wide uh, shortage of ammo. Um, It all becomes kind of a question mark on whether this is a sustainable way of fighting or if they will have to adapt and uh, either come up with a different sort of strategy or, I guess, culminate. Uh, So uh, the, the, the ammo is really the biggest question right now.
4: Yeah, and I think um, that's even one of the stated purposes of the DPICNs—not um, just the effectiveness of it, but also the the number of it. Is is that right, Andrew?
10: Yeah, that's a, that is certainly one of the the stated uh, purposes that um, the United States uh, basically—I I guess they did the math and they realized that they don't have. Uh, it, it, you know, it, with this new strategy of, of kind of more infantry based uh, tactics, um, if they were to use ammo at the rate that they're currently using it, at some point they would run out. So they needed more ammo, and uh, the, the ammo
4: available were these these cluster munitions. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. Um, I see angry ants is here. Uh, hello, angry ants. Please go ahead.
11: How you doing, Charles? You know, I, I was this is this. I've been thinking about this uh, question. Quite a bit for both sides. I think that Andrew did a great job, but on the other side of things, I think for the frontline Russian units, they are having to expend a, a large amount of shells, uh, even a larger number on, on areas um, to stop any type of advance. Um, the, the type of shell shortage, I think, that we're going to see when it comes to Russia, there's there's right the overall one, which we no one really has an idea about. But with the degradation of uh, the communication lines and transportation lines and, and being able to hit farther in what, what, what Ukraine's been doing over the last month or so, I see a, a really big shortage on frontline units. So that ability to get those rounds from, you know, five kilometers, you know, into into those frontline units. Um, I think that that's where we're going to see a lot of that localized hunger for shells um, from, the, from the Russian side. And, and if, if Ukraine can exploit that, I think it's going to be really good. Just a thought I had. Because the shoe's on this other side too. It's it's uh, Russia's able to stop these folks because of their ability to mass so many fires. So anyway, just just a couple thoughts, Charles.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot, Angry Ants. And, and this was, I mean, I guess what, what Artois was, was was talking about as well is, is more of a comparison to Harrison. Um and the importance of the introduction of supply lines and ammunition. Um, I'm not sure who the best is to, to answer, Artois or, or Andrew. You know, what have we seen over the last week and even over the last several weeks in, in this shift from territory to interdiction and and starving, like how, how do you guys look at that? What what are the main attacks that you're looking at that kind of pinpoint this approach? Um, maybe I'd start with with Artois and then go to Andrew. It, it's really
9: it's really what we what we spoke about earlier in the conversation, Charles. It's um it's, it's especially these ammo Um they so they it, it took them a while but they did adapt to the introduction of gunners and high bars um and the kind of the remaining uh toshka U stocks er, stocks that that they had um that ukraine had and they moved uh with those key kind of uh logistics hubs their ammunition stores, their fuel depots they moved it all back um it made things significantly difficult but they did adapt but really now the introduction of storm shadow as i said like I'll repeat. There's there's really nowhere in occupied Ukraine now that is safe to accumulate um, really any large quantities um, of of anything, it be that manpower, uh, ammunition, or fuel. And uh, just I mean, just the two weeks uh, just before we started this conversation, I, I went back through and looked through some lists, um, and the, the last two weeks alone, um, the number of really sizable ammunition stores that have just you know, just going pop overnight um, is, is significant. And that's that's not sustainable. And that ultimately, I think, was what uh, led to the collapse of the Horsan front. Um, so, yeah, I think it might, it might take a while for those effects to be fully seen, but there's already kind of anecdotally evidence um, that it's really going to start having an effect.
4: Okay, so we're, we're just looking for the indicators then of, uh, of that. Andrew, anything to add? um well uh
10: just just today uh ukraine hit what appears to be a a rather significant ammo depot near uh luhansk uh apparently uh they were storing ammo in an abandoned mine and uh the mine uh spectacularly exploded this morning um there are also uh, reports today that I, I haven't had time to really look into this, but there, there are reports today of uh, three different explosions near uh, Mariupol today. Uh, and, and in addition, there were reports of explosions in Mekivka and uh, uh, Yasnuvata. Uh, uh, so uh, th- th- those two last places are actually very close to the front line. Um, uh, but obviously uh, Mariupol and, and Luhansk are, are pretty far. Uh, there have also been uh, recently reports of uh, you know, uh, strikes near uh, Skadovsk and, and other areas as well. So, uh, the, the, I mean, just, just going on today, uh, uh, Ukraine has been able to uh, take out uh, what appears to be a significant ammo depot uh, in, in Luhansk.
9: Just, just very briefly there, Andrew actually made a, made a very good point um, about that, that ammunition depot that was inside a mine. Um, so the, the brooch warhead on the Storm Shadow... Um, the, the actual penetration depth on it is, you know, obviously not um, widely published, but it's it's believed to be, you know, anywhere between like it's like uh, ten to fifteen feet, um, I think was what I read, and, and that's that's of, of pure concrete. So these these munitions are designed to penetrate um, reinforced structures. So even um, maybe stuff that was potentially within Gimmer's range um, previously that they thought was, you know, completely safe, be that HQs um, or as Andrew said, you know, a mine full of ammunition. Um, shell is just going to punch straight through that, and it's going to, yeah, it's, it's going to vaporize anything that's that's stored in those kind of structures.
4: Yeah, go ahead,
7: please. Just as a point of broader context here, the brooch forehead was specifically designed to defeat um, hardened aircraft shelters made from concrete, so it is specifically designed to defeat... Um, hardened concrete bunkers and other, you know, military constructs. So something like a mine or even just very large buildings should, in general, not be um, much of a challenge for uh, Storm Shadow and Broach to achieve good effects on.
4: Yeah, uh, thanks a lot. Um, maybe while I've got you here, John, um, we had a question earlier. Regarding when we were talking about Germany, about the Taurus, um, there was some debate uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess, about uh, after after Storm Shadow was given by the UK, that Germany might be able to give Taurus. What is the capability of Taurus? How is it different than Storm Shadow?
7: So fundamentally, in terms of capabilities, um, Taurus has a capability profile that's enormously similar. Um, to uh, Storm Shadow and, and Scalpy G. Um, it is a different warhead. It has the Mephisto warhead, which is... It's a diff- slightly different design. It fills an identical function. Um, I think it might be... man. I can't remember if it's manufactured by the same German uh, defense group that also manufactures the brooch warhead for Storm Shadow and uh, Scalpy G. But the overall performance should be, you know... For all intents and purposes looking at, it at a high level we can essentially treat it as equivalent to storm shadow
4: okay thanks a lot and and while we're you know sort of on this topic and and sort of coming back to the german thing um i know that there were a few announcements recently about german arms manufacturers building production either in ukraine or in poland I think that was FFW or Ryan Metal or Crossmafi. Any any update in terms of you know production closer to the front lines than what we have now? Sorry, can you say that again, Charles? Yeah, any any updates in terms of production? Or repair facilities closer to the front line than we have now. I know there were a few announcements about from I think it was FFW, German arms manufacturer, doing something in Poland. Then another thing from Rheinmetall was cancelled, um, but maybe just to help uh, cut through the weeds, there what what's going on?
7: Right. So I guess the biggest item would be that uh, Rheinmetall is opening you know, a large facility within the next twelve weeks. I was asked about a week ago. In Western Ukraine, that in its initial phase will um, provide, will, will service, repair, and refurbish uh, Fuchs' wheeled armored personnel carriers. Um, Jeremy is providing a number of them from, I'm not sure if they're from Bundeswehr or from German industry stocks, but my understanding is that there's quite a lot of them that aren't necessarily in operable condition as is, but they can be refurbished. It looks like those refurbishments are going to be done in Ukraine by Ryan Metall at this facility. So, in in the initial phase, it'll just be repairs, maintenance, and refurbs. And then, in future, at an undisclosed point in the uh, some sometime from now, they plan to expand that to full rate Fuchs production in Ukraine at this facility. And uh, Ryan Mattel has also made an offer to the Ukrainian government to set up a KF-51 Panther main battle tank production line, also at that facility with a theoretical capacity, uh, once at full operating rate of about 400 tanks per year. Um, that would be not just for Ukraine, as I understand it, that would be for all potential uh, KF-51 customers. Uh, they would Their vehicles would be produced at that facility. Um, obviously the KF 51, uh, specifically is rather technologically immature at this point. So I'm not really holding my breath. And even if so, we'd be talking 12 to 14 months optimistically to bring that, uh, production line online. So in all due likelihood, this would be a post-war project, but in the meantime, um, having that future repair and refurbishment capability will be useful and it will become even more useful if they can get that. Uh, new build production line up and running within the next you know, six months or so. They haven't published any timelines, but if they can get that going before while the war is still ongoing, that would be very helpful.
4: So, so let me see if I got this straight, John. Um, they're talking about setting up production for the successor for the Leopard 2 in Ukraine. Is that right? Correct, yes. Ryan Matal has made that offer to the Ukrainian government.
7: Interesting. All right. So this is very similar to what they did with Lynx, um, which is their, uh, if their, infant, their, their IFV, their infantry fighting vehicle to succeed the martyr, um, Rheinmetall produces. Two, they produce the um, Lynx, which is really for export customers mainly. Um, and then they also have the Puma, which is their IFV to literally replace the martyr in Bundeswehr service specifically. But um, for Lynx, they're, they're kind of their export IFV, they set up the primary production facility for that in Hungary. So this would more or less be analogous to that deal, except they would be setting up KF51 production in Ukraine, and then all customers' units or their orders would be fulfilled at that factory in Ukraine.
4: Fascinating. Um, Thanks a lot, John. Uh, Please, Colby, go ahead.
6: So the other um, company, which you mentioned, is FFG. Uh, which is a, another German armored vehicle manufacturer, um, one of which is the g 3 um, which is currently in service with uh, within Nor- Norway um, in the, I think it's armored combat support vehicle variant or something along those lines. Um, so there was an announcement that Ukraine um, had agreed to a, a joint venture with them, um, I didn't see too many other subsequent details beyond that about what, what that might look like in practice. Um, but I would just say that something like this might be a little bit more plausible than setting up main battle tank production, which is obviously a very uh, complicated endeavor. So just trying to get some more basic uh, tracked armored vehicle production happening in Ukraine, um, you know, less than MBTs MBTs is, is probably more achievable in the short term. But uh, we'll, we'll see what comes of this uh, announcement. I, I put a tweet up in the nest uh, regarding that. I would also add that Ryan Mattel
7: previously said that they're going to create some joint ventures for the of non-specified types of ammunition in Ukraine, as well as production of non-specified types of air defense systems in Ukraine as well.
4: Uh, thanks. I mean, uh, this is also interesting to me because, I mean, I've recently seen reports that um, Ukraine is saying that um, some of their engineering vehicles are in shortage, mine clearing vehicles and sh- and so on. Of course, that makes sense. Of course, uh, we, we've talked about breaching. We've talked about the the threat of mines on this uh, space and on this podcast uh, for a while now. And also, of course, the shortage of dedicated engineering vehicles. Um you know, FFG, I believe, also makes the visant um, which is one of the best engineering vehicles in the world, if not the best. Um, but of course, now we're talking about lead time. It, it doesn't really help uh, as much if they can have it built in, in two years. They, they need it now. Um, I don't know if they make the Docks, uh, which is the other one. Uh, I think we've talked a bit in the past that the US doesn't really have um, dedicated combat engineering vehicles like uh, the Europeans do. Um, they have, of course, uh, armored bridge uh, AVLBs, so um, those exist, miklicks exist in the US inventory, armored uh, bulldover, bulldozers, yes, but um, the really swiss army knives of of engineer vehicles often come from europe um so yeah we shall see um Biennale, did you have something to add sorry
1: yeah basically it was about the reason one and the reason two um the recovery and mine clearing vehicles ffg is producing and i could imagine um especially for maintenance and repairs um yeah that's a good point to have uh joint ventures in ukraine
4: Great. Um, So we've just got a a little bit of time left on the military panel. Um, Maybe just another question for John. Um, Some talk this week uh, around the NATO summits uh, on the fringes of it, I guess, in terms of the F-16s and the U.S. F-16 training program, uh, whether it exists or not. Um, What have you seen in terms of U.S. commitment towards F-16 training and, um, and procurement. So currently
7: the, there has been a statement at the excuse me at the summit that the coalition to train uh, Ukrainian pilots to operate the F-16 and provide the necessary airframes, that coalition exists and that this will be done in time. My current understanding as of this morning, um, based upon some uh, reporting that was published uh, several hours ago, the State Department has not, as of yet, granted the export license um, to deliver the training manuals, the simulators, and other uh, items that are necessary to begin training. So as of the moment, training has not yet begun pending U.S. State Department approval for the transfer of the necessary items.
4: Okay, thanks a lot. And and kind of the final topic that I had for you is... Um, defense minister ben wallace has i guess stepped down resigned from politics in the uk parliament um, as defense minister um he's also made a couple statements uh what's the news with ben wallace
7: right so i believe regarding his political future just to touch on that briefly he said that he will be stepping down at the next cabinet reshuffle so he's not stepping down effective immediately but the next time there's a major change in the composition of the cabinet, he will be departing his office. Um, so who, who is successful will be that's the a discussion for another time. But he was giving a press briefing earlier today, and he made some very interesting comments about a couple different items. Uh, Artois uh, referenced references comment regarding that 2,500 tons of ammunition that was destroyed in a storm shadow strike. But he also made a comment regarding... Um, a joint manufacturing effort with Ukraine I put the tweet up in the nest um, with a summary of that it would appear that Ukraine made a request to the UK to pr- manufacture parts of something in locally in the UK and that they have uh, accepted that request um, whatever it is is being produced in the UK at Ukraine's behest and that at the conclusion of hostilities all of that manufacturing infrastructure will be transferred back to Ukraine So that indicates that there is some defense-related joint venture going on. I have my, I guess, informed speculation, if you will, as to what it is. My first thought is that it's probably either related to UAVs or cruise missiles um, in terms of kind of the overlap between um, the capabilities that the UK can provide um, and the capabilities that Ukraine already has domestically, they would want to expand upon with UK support, the, the main two items that are in my mind are <laughs> cruise missiles and UAVs. It would also align with a RFP request for proposal from the UK Ministry of Defense that was, I believe, closed in May of this year, early May, for long, uh, long-range strike capabilities Um, either ballistic cruise missiles with a range of about 300 kilometers and a variety of other capabilities. Mm -hmm. My guess is that it's probably related to that RFP effort or another similar line of effort. So I suspect that there is a domestic Ukrainian system that has been developed by some defense group in Ukraine, probably one of uh, Ugroborona's subsidiaries. And then they're doing part of the manufacturing in the UK with a possible technology transfer to a system in this effort. And that post, you know, when we get to the post war environment, that manufacturing line or the portion of it that is in the UK will then be transferred to Ukraine. That seems to be what is occurring. Um, there's don't really have any specifics that are public um, beyond that. But I, I'd say more than likely it's either something related to probably a cruise missile or some sort of striker or reconnaissance UAV would be my best guess.
4: Okay, this is actually quite interesting. Um, obviously, we'll keep track of this kind of these defense production contracts or commitments to Ukraine, um, especially in light of the most recent NATO summit in in Vilnius and some of the statements made there. Um, it was a, the communiqué was was very vague. I think um, all of the politicians sort of made the statements. Um, they needed to make in one way or the other. Uh, of course, they were, uh, observers were disappointed on one side or the other. Um, that makes sense. But it's certainly an interesting topic. Um, so, basically, with that, uh, that's all the topics that I have for the military segment today. From the panel, are there any questions, comments, things you'd like to discuss um, before we close? Sean, please go ahead.
7: I just kind of just to round this off, um, which just a couple other these joint ventures. Um, some other ones that are previous that were previously announced. I'm not sure if we ever discussed them on here on air on Tochny, but they <laughs> this is a little bit of old news, but I thought I'd just quickly rehash it just kind of to give a completer picture. Um BAE is also going to be opening an office in Ukraine. As of yet, they haven't committed to at least publicly uh, they haven't committed to producing anything specifically. But that, I would say, is a very major move, BIE, uh, going to open this office. Ukraine's M777s were manufactured by BIE, so they will no doubt in the future need to set up facilities um, to service and maintain those. So that's almost certainly something that we can take as a given. Um, that opens up possibilities, like if, they want, if Ukraine wanted to explore domestic production of the M777 or any other BIE product, that is also something we could be um, looking at. Uh, I believe one of the execs at Lockheed Martin, one of the program directors for the F-16, he commented that post-war, it's you know all but certain that Lockheed Martin will open an office in Ukraine, um, at least initially, to provide you know sustainment and support for Ukraine's F-16 fleet. Um, obviously, efforts could be expanded from there if they want to set up additional joint ventures for the sustainment or you know just entire production of new systems. That's also a possibility. So. It, it's really, over the past several months, we've gotten some really major announcements or, well, announcements that potentially carry some, some major implications down the road um, that will be very, very positive for Ukraine from a defense standpoint and an industrial standpoint as well.
4: Yeah, um, that context is great. Thanks a lot, uh, John. Um, so I guess with that, um, we'll close up the military segment and I'll hand back to Joseph. Thanks a lot, guys.
2: Thank you, Charles. Uh, To our live listeners, if you're interested in more content about Ukraine, we recommend checking out Michael Bond Space, which starts broadcasting right now. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Toch New Weekly. We broadcast live at 1800 UTC every week on Sunday today. A recording of this episode and all our content is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. Please also check out our new Substack for our written content. We also recommend Andrew's weekly stream for information from the front lines, which broadcasts at midnight UTC every Wednesday. That's 8 p.m. Tuesday, New York time. And thank you to our guest, Anna from Zafarija for coming and sharing her insights with us. And thanks to everyone on our panel who uh, contributed today. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in and see everyone next week. Slava Ukraini.
4: Adam Slava. On behalf of the brave.